From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Incumbent Democratic Senator Michael Bennett says he's ready for a difficult election, given the rate of inflation and issues like abortion access. I'm concerned about the fate of our democracy. I've said for years and years and years that I think our democracy is fragile, in part because we have such massive income inequality in our country. And now we know our democracy is not just fragile, we are losing fundamental human rights. Then it's like the Oscars or the Grammys for culinary achievement. The James Beard Awards returns this year with a recommitment to embracing diversity. Not only do you have African-American chefs, you had chefs from various cultures, and you had people coming up to get their awards in their traditional cultural dress, speaking their native language. Plus, a special bond created by violins. July 6, 1924, a funeral procession in what is now Johnstown. 200 mourners are startled by four large explosions. A meteor has streaked into the Earth's atmosphere and breaks up. Sounds like machine gun fire, whistling, screeching, rumbles, roars, and the smell of sulfur fills the air, leading some to think it's the end of the world. In fact, those mourners were rare witnesses to a meteorite fall. 27 pieces of the Johnstown meteorite were recovered over a 10-mile area. The largest, more than 50 pounds, embedded itself nearly six feet deep into Colorado soil. The rock had interplanetary origins from Vesta, the second largest and brightest asteroid in the solar system, more than 100 million miles away, somewhere between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Senator Michael Bennett is gearing up for the general election in November. The incumbent Democrat is running against Republican businessman Joe O'Day. And pundits say this year he faces an uphill battle. I spoke with Bennett about rising inflation, abortion access, and his reelection campaign. Senator Bennett, welcome. It's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month, you released a statement saying, quote, this ruling is not the last word. In the months ahead, the American people have the opportunity to elect pro-choice majorities in the Congress and in state legislatures across the country to codify law in the fundamental right to choose. What is stopping Congress from making Roe v. Wade law right now? Well, let me just say, first of all, this is the first time in American history that a fundamental constitutional American right has been stripped from the American people. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for our society. It's a tragedy for women all over the state of Colorado and and across this country. And the the Supreme Court cannot be the last word. We have to elect pro-choice majorities, as I said, in the Senate and the House. And what's standing in the way is that we don't today have the votes to codify Roe versus Wade. Uh, in the in the U.S. Senate. Um, I hope that's going to change in this election. There's already a majority of abortion rights supporters in the House and Senate right now who support making abortion access legal on a federal level. This, of course, includes Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Both have said they'd support that action. 
Again, why can't Congress codify abortion rights access now? Well, I, I've, I've talked to both Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, and I, uh, I think that it may be possible at some point to get a bipartisan vote that would uh, support the codification of Roe versus Wade. Unfortunately, it would fall well short of the 60 votes that are required to overcome the filibuster in the Senate right now. In the past, you have argued in support of getting rid of the filibuster. Do you think that's the answer and the only way to ensure abortion rights access becomes law? Well, as I just mentioned, it's I believe it's important to, for us to have a functioning Senate, and I would vote to change the rules to do that, to create the opportunity for the minority to have much more say, to be able to have real debates again in the Senate, and to allow a majority to 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 make a decision with 51 votes. And yeah, I believe that's that would be an important step to codifying Roe versus Wade. But I also think it's not just Roe. There are lots of things that we have to do as a country to make sure that we're competing, in particular with um, with, uh, with with Beijing. And uh, that's hard to do when a, a, a group of senators representing roughly 22% of the people that live in our country have a veto on everything, whether that's uh, choice or whether that's uh, health care or whether it's immigration. All these issues um, can be vetoed by, by people representing that small number of people in the U.S. So if the Senate gets rid of the filibuster, do you think there's a risk of having no way to stop legislation you disagree with if the GOP reclaims a majority in the Senate? There's no doubt about that. That is absolutely a risk. Uh, it, you know, what it could, for example, if the filibuster didn't exist, it would only take 51 votes to ban abortion in this country. So we have to go into this with our eyes wide open. I think the difference is that, you know, 70% of the American people support codifying Roe, whereas a minority uh, of the people uh, believe, agree with the Supreme Court decision that. Uh, that abortion should be, uh, that, that, that Roe should be going to this with their eyes wide open. But I think part of the problem with the current system that we have is that when Washington can't get anything done, it's very difficult for the American people to hold the folks accountable, in this case, Mitch McConnell in particular, uh, for why nothing ever gets done here. And I think, um, I think changing the rules of the Senate to make it operate in the way that I would describe would create more accountability than we have today. You alluded to this earlier. The most recent term of the Supreme Court has led to many controversial decisions, with some critics calling for impeachment of some justices or even adding more justices to the high court. Do you support either of those measures? I think that the idea of putting justices on, more justices on the Supreme Court is not something that the American people would support. I would worry that taking that position would risk creating a pro-life majority in the Senate for for a decade or more. I, I am considering whether the right idea answer here would be to have term limits for Supreme Court justices as a way of trying to depoliticize the the confirmation process that frankly, has been destroyed by the United States Senate. Our responsibility to devise and consent on Supreme Court justices, when I, you know, when I was in law school, that was a process that the American people uh, knew that senators respected, and that every time we put a, a judge on the court, 
with 90 or 95 or 98 votes, we reasserted the independent nature of the judiciary and, and we're not exporting our hopefully temporarily partisan insanity to the court. Now we've destroyed that. And one way out of that might be to, to create term limits for justices and just bring down the temperature. In his majority opinion for the Dobbs ruling, Justice Alito said this is an issue of states' rights and it should be up to individual states. What problems will this cause? Yeah, I fundamentally disagree with Alito, Justice Alito's opinion. I read his opinion. He completely, in my view, uh, missed the fact that we're talking about a fundamental human right here. That's what this is. This is a fundamental right. He didn't even contend with that. And and I'll give you one example just off the top of my head. You know, I've been called by people that have served in the military uh, and who's women uh, who said to me, what is this going to happen to women in the military who are serving in states where abortion is banned? How in the world are they going to be able to get the medical services that they need? That's a perfect example. And, and even if you provided the medical services, even if you paid for people to be able to travel, you know, people enlisted, people enlisted in the military to be able to travel, even if you paid for it, everybody in the unit is going to know because you're gone for a day or you're gone for two days. What's going on? What has happened to the right to privacy has been shredded by this Supreme Court opinion. So that's just one example. Uh, another issue is uh, what's going to happen to poor women living in states that banned abortion. I guarantee you that women of means in these states are going to find a way to continue to have access to the right to choose. But if you're poor, if you're living in a rural community someplace, which doesn't really have access to healthcare to begin with, what this is going to mean is there are going to be millions of American women who no longer have the right to choose, who are going to have to carry their pregnancies to term because the state tells them they have to. That's the result of the Supreme Court decision. The Washington Post and the New York Times have published stories about Democrats who are frustrated with what they see as a lack of leadership from President Biden on key issues such as gun control, and abortion. This has led to worries about big losses in the midterm elections. Are you concerned? Look, I'm concerned about the fate of our democracy. I've said for years and years and years that I think our democracy is fragile, uh, in part because we have such massive income inequality in our country, in part because we have such little economic mobility left in our country because of the damage that's been caused by trickle-down economics for five decades in the United States. And now we're no, we know our democracy is not just fragile, we, we are losing fundamental human rights now as a result of the fact that Donald Trump got elected president and we need to man the barricades. That's what we have to do, you know, and we got to show up and vote and every single person needs to vote. Back to the initial question, do you have concerns about Biden's leadership? What I would say about Joe Biden is that he was the one person out of 300 million Americans who could beat Donald Trump, and he beat Donald Trump. And I am very grateful that he ran, and I am extremely grateful that he won. I have, I have you know, my disagreements with President Biden from time to time. You know, I've fought the administration on the, the solar uh, tariffs that were going to destroy the solar industry in Colorado. I've fought Democrats and the administration on the state and local tax deduction, which I think is a giveaway to the wealthiest people in the country. I've fought, you know, them to make sure that 
We had the BLM headquarters mm-hmm. located in Colorado. So, you know, we have our disagreements, but in the main, I just feel grateful that he ran and won and beat Donald Trump. President Biden's approval rating is at an all-time low right now, 33%. Is he the right leader for this country right now? I think anybody who is president right now would be at those kind of low approval ratings. When you have energy prices, you know, when it costs $4.84 a gallon to fill up your tank in Colorado, when you got the kind of inflation that we have, you know, any any president, I think, would be facing the sorts of uh, low approval ratings that he is facing. Speaking of inflation, the cost of living has skyrocketed both nationally and here in Colorado. In fact, this week, we just learned that inflation hit 9.1% in June. As you alluded to, gas prices are at an all-time high, and it's increasingly difficult to find affordable housing. Republicans, including your opponent, Joe O'Day, blame the Democrats. Is that a fair judgment? Uh, I, I definitely think that's not a fair judgment. I mean, if you look, if you just read a newspaper, you'll see that uh, almost every country in the world is facing almost exactly the same inflation that we're facing. Look at Canada, look at the United Kingdom, look at the EU. And the reason for that isn't hard to understand. It's, you know, the broken supply chains that we have to fix that coming out of the COVID recession has driven up inflation for consumer goods and um, and the economic recovery itself, which has driven up the price of energy, and then Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which has driven up the price of energy and the price of food. That's all, the fact that it's happening in every single country is really cold comfort to people in our state and in our country who are having to pay, as I say, $4.84 uh, for gas or higher prices for food. And it's very natural, I think, that they would blame, um, you know, the the president or the party that's in power or the, for that, even though it's really a global phenomenon. So this is obviously something we're going to have to deal with in the election. On the on the point on housing, this has become a, a, a catastrophic situation in the state of Colorado. It's why I put together a group of people from all over the state uh, last year who are housing experts to make recommendations on what we're going to do about this, because uh, there is no workforce housing left in the state of Colorado anywhere, urban or rural. And, so what, and it's changed. What are you when proposing I, to do about inflation? Well, it's what, it's what this group of experts have proposed, which is that we need to find ways of increasing supply. We need to innovate in terms of uh, how, we, how, we, uh, how we build housing in the country. We, we're going to have to have, in the, in the state, we're going to have to have more density to be able to deal with it. And it's critically important if we don't want to turn into San Francisco or Seattle. When I was the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools just 14 years ago, it was very common to meet people who who taught in Denver and lived in Denver. Now, if you're a teacher in the Denver Public Schools, it's impossible to afford housing in Denver. And it's not just Denver. The teacher of the year this year in Colorado is from Glenwood Springs. And she was kind enough to come visit me in my DC office and she said to me, she wasn't complaining, but she said in passing that 70 to 80 percent of her colleagues in her middle school and her high school in Glenwood Springs have to work two or three jobs uh, just to just to be able to live in Glenwood Springs. That is absolutely unsustainable for our state and unsustainable for our country. 
and we have to address it. Some political pundits have described you as being vulnerable in the upcoming election. And during the primary, some progressive groups spent millions boosting State Representative Ron Hanks. What are your thoughts about that strategy? And do you consider it dangerous for progressive groups to use money to influence the outcome of an election? Well, that that is not my campaign, but um, but I will say that I agree that this is going to be a really challenging election. I've I've had challenging elections before. Twenty ten was a terrible year for Democrats, and and we barely hung on. Uh, I ran again in twenty sixteen. That was also a tough year, and I think this is going to be a tough year as well for the reasons that we talked about earlier. But I think that I've got a record uh, uh, in Colorado of working for people, whether they voted for me or whether they didn't, uh, spending time in all over the state, rural and, and urban Colorado, the mm. eastern plains and the west slope and every place in between. So we're going to run a very vigorous campaign, and I think we'll be successful in, my, uh, in, in the fall. The January 6th committee hearings continue. What actions do you think need to be taken following those hearings? Well, I think I don't I don't want to get ahead of the January 6th commission because they're not done with their work, but their work is incredibly important. It's really important to get this on the historical record. I mean, people like my opponent, just for one example, uh, Chandra, and my opponent in this Senate race says Donald Trump bears no responsibility for January 6th. I mean, that is just a ridiculous statement. And I think what Liz Cheney and others are doing are a really important public service to the country. I hope the result of this, in the end, uh, is that Donald Trump never is able to run for president again. But we'll have to see what happens. We'll have to see what happens with the final result of the commission. Senator, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. We recorded our conversation on Wednesday. One note of clarification about the senator's claims that the Dobbs decision was the first time the Supreme Court took away rights. PolitiFact looked into this claim and legal scholars said, while rare, it is not the first time the high court has reversed a previous decision. Farmers and ranchers in southern Colorado face a deadline. Their source of water beneath the San Luis Valley is drying up. They need to drastically cut the amount of water they pump out of the ground. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports on a new tool to make that happen, and it could be the first of its kind in the country. A front row view of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains frames a line of grain silos overlooking a 150-year-old farm in southern Colorado. Sarah Parmar is with Colorado Open Lands, a nonprofit that works to protect land from development. She recounts her first visit to this farm last summer. The farmer, he had a mix of peas and oats that he was growing, and they were up to his waist, and he was, you know, picking off a pea and showing it to me. It's definitely a very productive farm. Now, instead of fields of green, these 1,800 acres are brown and dry. The farmer, who wanted to stay anonymous, has stopped watering his fields. Usually, he'd pump millions of gallons of water up from the ground to grow his crop. Instead, he's working with Parmar on a deal to not use that water for irrigation, to keep other farms in operation. We, the land trust, are being given by the landowner their groundwater pumping rights to not use them in order to store them within the aquifer. 
The farmer has agreed to a groundwater conservation easement, which Parmar believes might be the first of its kind in the country. Usually, a conservation easement aims to keep a farm or ranch in production by tying the land and its water rights together so the land can't be turned into, say, a new housing development. Then in this case, we're actually saying, we want you to change the property by no longer irrigating. But in doing that, you're going to provide these public benefits, which are really regional in nature. What would be the benefit of putting this farm out of production? It means keeping nearly 400 million gallons of water under the San Luis Valley, which is desperately needed. The aquifer is drying up due to a combination of drought, climate change, and overuse. So local leaders are working to get the system back in balance. The way to do that? Pay farmers and ranchers to use less water. Parmar says this farmer wanted to be part of the solution. He said to me, you know, I love this farm, but, you know, my wife and I were never able to have children. And when I look around this valley, I see the challenge that we're facing. And my neighbors, most of them have a next generation that they're trying to pass along their farm to. By putting this farm out of production, the groundwater levels in this part of the San Luis Valley will return to a sustainable level, which means other farms close by can keep growing food. Because if sustainable water targets aren't met, the state has threatened to shut off lots of farms all at once. Chris Ivers is a program manager for the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. The state, they issued a lot more well permits than this area can support. And so we're dealing with sort of the sins of our fathers trying to reduce the draw on the aquifer and and get back into a sustainable balance. Iver said this groundwater conservation easement is a permanent solution, which is needed. He says temporary moves like a farmer or rancher agreeing to cut back on their water use for a season or two hasn't been enough. It's been a huge struggle. I think most of us in the Valley are are in this business of of water management in the Valley are, are realizing that we need to see some land come out of production That's bad news for the San Luis Valley, where fields of potatoes and lettuce are the economic driver. Republican State Senator Cleve Simpson represents part of the valley and is the head of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. He uses groundwater to irrigate about 2,000 acres of family farmland to mostly grow alfalfa, which Simpson says is one of the most water-intensive crops. I lay awake at night thinking, I don't think I can keep doing What I've been doing and what my family's been doing for decades, I don't think it's sustainable. Simpson says his farm and ones like it are part of the problem. He's experimenting with growing hemp and other drought-friendly crops in an attempt to use less water. And he says new ideas like a groundwater conservation easement are necessary. It means farmers and ranchers are compensated to gradually get back in balance with nature. He says incremental solutions will help avoid a sudden economic fallout in the valley. But he says that's getting harder to pull off. This isn't 20 years of drought. This is truly the aridification of the West. Simpson is referring to research that shows climate change is making drought a permanent problem. That means if farmers here in southern Colorado want to keep making a living, they'll have to survive with less water. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. When we come back, diversifying the James Beard Awards. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. 
when I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The James Beard Awards are back. After a two-year absence fueled by both the COVID pandemic and an extremely public controversy in 2020, the annual event, which I often refer to as the Grammys or Oscars of the culinary world, has officially returned to an in-person presentation. This year's ceremony included a noted recommitment to upholding, quote, racial and gender equity, community, sustainability, and a culture where all can thrive. Denver Culinary Ambassador Etef Vita, a vegan chef and rapper who has cooked for the Obamas and alongside culinary queen Rachel Ray, was invited for the first time to serve as a judge for this year's awards. He attended the star-studded affair filmed at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. He joins us now to give us a behind-the-scenes look at what it was like to be a part of this world-renowned event. DJ Kava, which is what I like to call you, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. It's such a beautiful opportunity to speak with you. You never cease to amaze me. You are out there in the world, always representing Denver and Colorado. How does it feel to be tapped as a judge for the Super Bowl of the culinary world? Wow. Well, first of all, it's an honor uh, to be able to be amongst peers and mentors and people I really look up to, you know, like Adrian. I think about from the opportunity of not only just being amongst, you know, the culinary vibe of this, you know, because, you know, of course, I'm a chef, but as a hip hop artist, you know, to really sprinkle in some of that diversity, I think that was really beautiful. You know, I saw so many people who look like me receive awards and positions that I didn't even know were actually available to get nominated in. So that was the big inspiration there. And to celebrate with so many people from the wild, wild west, I was like, let's go. (laughs) I love that. You are just such an ambassador for Denver and Colorado and the West, as you say. So we're going to get into that diversity issue. But take us back to when you first learned that you had been tapped to be a judge for the 2022 James Beard Awards. What was that like? Wow. You know, first thing first, I was like, they must have got a a tip in from like Gail Simmons or like some of my good friends over at like NBC. I was like, "Ah, something is happening. But the fact is that they're really inspired by what I bring to the table and sustainability, you know, bridging the gap between environmental activism and culinary arts. And they specifically asked me for, you know, to have some notes within this. And I was honored. Um, Some of the people I was excited to see win, of course, like Erica Allen and, you know, other activists who are doing great work around, um, you know, organic gardening and encouraging community and not just in the culinary field. I thought that was very powerful. So I felt at home. But when I walked into the place, of course, you know, I still had on my Chuck Taylors. You know, I still had on the hat on the do-rag and, you know, the, the jousting helmet. I felt like it was important to be different and bring a culture that a lot of times you don't really see in that kind of world, you know. I think the youngsters called that drip. Hey, it was it was fresh and fly like a like a you know, a produce section, should I say, you know? Well, I know produce excites you, so that sounds really exciting. Hey, that's the only way to keep it fresh. I'm really interested. What what was the judging process like? Like what does it entail? 
hundreds of chefs, restaurateurs, artists who are really making an impact within media, writers. And I felt like just going through and skimming through those names and reading their bio, understanding their their background, having a really concise way of trying to like get all that down within hundreds of mm. other applicants. Uh, it was such a beautiful honor. Um, just happened to, you know, stumble across some of the names that I did recognize. And of course, I felt like it was just like good to see those people as well. But, you know, with the opportunity like that, James Beard, you know, of course, like this is one that people dream of. And uh, one of my mentors, Bryant Terry, I happened to be there for his, um, you know, his his availability just to be present with him. Like it was just so, so golden like the opportunity there is that's what you really look forward to is to watch your friends win to be present when when you know people actually have an opportunity to teach each other what it is and how to get involved and so that's why i was there you know just sprinkling a little salt on it you know they they, they needed a little love and i was <laughs> i was there to you know keep it jazzy should i say i'm sure you did was it overwhelming a bit to have to sift through all these these hey. culinary superstars and narrow this down Hey, man, you know, an elephant is heavy. So I definitely had uh, a lot on my heart, and I wanted to make sure I represented. But um, at the end of the day, we're here to plant seeds. And so my main goal was just to make sure that I give everyone an opportunity that was fair. And uh, that's exactly what it's all about, you know, spreading seeds and showing people that we can grow from this opportunity, regardless if you're a winner or not. You got nominated, and that's that's golden. I should note that DJ Kavim and I worked together last year in 2021 on an article for NPR.org about a gardening boom among black people during the pandemic. And so I also know that you are an avid gardener. So I I get the reference. Yeah, you know, we're always planting something. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get more into the backstory of what's been going on with the James Beard Awards. In 2020, as protests for racial justice into broader demands for accountability across many workplaces, the restaurant industry, like many industries, was forced in many ways to reckon with its widespread allegations of discrimination and misconduct and tough questions had to be answered about how it had, to some degree, turned a blind eye to misbehavior. Mm. What a lot of people don't know, or may not know, I should say, is, and that includes me, is that back in 2020, members of the Beards Award Committee, the team that leads the awards, sent a letter to the foundation's board expressing concerns over the organization's own working conditions and lack of diversity. The foundation also came under fire for how it had handled or allegedly handled allegations about misbehavior concerning some of that year's nominees. And that also included some criticism for not having any black nominees in 2020. Any thoughts you want to share about that situation? Hey, well, like I said, we had extra hot sauce in the bag, you know, and uh, it was fun, you know, to talk about the fact that it wasn't just about, you know, who's composting, who's recycling, who has the best, you know, renewable energy, you know, at the restaurant. And to see the fact that a lot of times it really was the soul, you know, I saw a lot of shoes glowing and uh, it was a good vibe, you know, especially with people like my man Adrian in the place, because, you know, and not, you're referring to yeah. the Denver Soul Food Scholar, and, Adrian Miller, of course. You know it, you know it, you know, and like that was just so impactful there, you know. And the, the other part that really touched me was the social media con- content that I saw that they had there. Um, the Black Forager, Alexis, 
she actually got an opportunity to win the award. None of them just be, you know, nominated. I thought about the fact that there's a space for influencers who are making impact around how to forge, how to be sustainable, how to actually create access, especially in the space from a person who grew up in a food desert, you know, or food swamp for a lot of our friends and family. We can actually transform that and to have that level of acknowledgement. That was beautiful. To that end, we spoke recently and you have said in so many words that you believe it's a new day for the James Beard Awards and that the 2022 awards was the most diverse you had seen. And I think you said it was the most melanated you'd ever seen. And melanin, of course, is what gives us skin pigmentation and oh, yeah. is more pronounced in people of color. I said so, electricity. Yeah. So what was it like being in Chicago with all these festivities? Like were the parties just amazing? Wow. You know, in the culinary world, it's sometimes just like, you know, the sustainability world. Sometimes I feel like the pepper and the salt, you know, but a lot of times, you know, that's flavor. That's that's the that's the style that we come with. And, um, you know, with all of that being said, I stand on the shoulders of some great elders and ancestors and to see people like, you know, Eric Adams and like a lot of other people like Don Palandar. Like there were so many people who were getting so much love that it just felt at home. And um, a lot of times that's what we really need to see. As a, as a young man who grew up in the education system, to see an educator who looked like me when I was mm. a youth, I think really impacted me to not only want to be an educator, but also wanted to like figure out ways that I can give back to the next generation. So I'm here to just acknowledge, you know, that uh, I am because you are. We are because they were. And, you know, that's the origin of hip hop, higher inner peace, helping other people. Well, it's exciting. It's, I think it's going to be so exciting just watching how this all evolves with the awards and, and who's going to be the next stars that are acknowledged. So we should also note that Chef Caroline Glover of the Aurora restaurant Annette won the 2022 James Beard Award for Best Chef for the Mountain Region, which includes Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. And soon we will be hearing from Chef Glover on Colorado Matters. So, DJ Kavum, I understand that you were also hanging out in Chicago with the glitterati of the culinary world, including Denver's own Adrian Miller, who is known as Denver's soul food scholar. And Adrian won this year, and we welcome Adrian, the soul food scholar, today. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. So you have this new book, Black Smoke, and you were featured twice on the Netflix series High on the Hog. And so you won an award again this year, the second time. Yeah, yeah. So my second James Beard Award. So it's a book award for outstanding reference history and scholarship. So hmm. um, Black Smoke, I just feel privileged to tell the story of the ancestors that you know, in barbecue are going unacknowledged, uh, underappreciated. Black folks have been either moved to the sidelines of barbecue or left out of the story entirely. And I just thought that was messed up. So Black Smoke is a celebration of African-American barbecue and a restoration of African-Americans to the barbecue narrative. So I was just really honored to tell that story. What is it like just to be at this world-renowned event? Well, first of all, you're just around incredible people, you know, just like Etef has mentioned, just like, you know, the leading figures in the food world that you look up to, people whose work you follow, uh, who are doing next level things. Uh, and so, you know, you're just glad to be in that space. You, you feel a little imposter syndrome sometimes, right? You're like, OK, and then did I am I supposed to be? No here? way. Like, you know, you never know. <laughs> um, and so just and then uh, usually uh, and it was certainly the case with me, you, you have very stiff competition. 
in these categories. So either one of the books in my category could have won. And so just to have my name called was really cool. So was the diversity noticeable for you this year? Oh, most definitely. Um, You know, a few years ago, we had a number of black chefs win. But I think the thing that was cool this time around is um, not only do you have African-American chefs, but you had chefs from various cultures. uh, And you had people coming up to get their awards in their traditional cultural Mm. dress. Uh, You speaking the language, their native language. uh, You know, I don't think we've heard that that much at these awards. Um, You know, we had a chef from Hawaii, a native Hawaiian who won and uh, wore her dress and and spoke um, some some of the Hawaiian uh, language when she accepted. And and it was just really cool. So the diversity was definitely palpable. um, And uh, you just definitely felt like that there's been a pivotal change. And um, not only in terms of uh, just race and ethnicity, but we also had a number of geographic diversity wins. Mm. So people from places that normally don't get shine, um, they definitely won as well. And so the consequence of that is when you start, you know, giving love to more people, you've got places like L.A. and others that are saying, hey, we didn't get any awards, you know, in the national categories. L.A. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but that's going to be a consequence, right? Because for so long, these other places dominated. And so if you make an intentional effort to spread the love to other places and people, you know, there's going to be times when a place like Los Angeles or New York may not get all the accolades that they're used to getting. But I think overall, people were really pleased that there's been an effort to just recognize people from all different places. And one of my goals, in addition to just continuing the diversity, is I wanted um, the food truck or the restaurant in a rural area to be able to win. Wow. Good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah. I'm sure there's some good food out in the country. <laughs> there is, right? But the way that things work, um, you know, it's just dominated by the major cities, right? And so a rural place can certainly get nominated, but it's just hard for them to win just the way that the the process is structured right now. And so that's one of my hopes in the near future that that could be a reality. I'm sure we have some foodies listening today, and they may be looking for some good food, especially when they travel Who are some of the chefs that we should be looking at and keeping an eye on? Wow. So in the barbecue realm, you've got a a guy like Rodney Scott out of Charleston, who's somebody I think you should look at. you got Mashama Bailey, who won. Um, She's out of Savannah, a place called The Grand. Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. Savannah, Georgia. you got Tiffany Derry in Texas doing next level things. Um, Wow. you got uh, Etef already mentioned, uh, Bryant Terry, what he's doing uh, in the Bay Area. There's another woman. I'm blanking on her name. I'm sorry. In Atlanta, she's on the vegan. T- uh, the woman who does slutty vegan. Oh, that's um, Pinky. Pinky Cole. Pinky, yeah, yeah. Who Proud just, Clark Atlanta University alum, my alma mater. Yeah, who uh, my understanding is she just inked a $100 million expansion deal. And just had a baby like the other day. Yeah. So uh, what about you, DJ Kavum? Which chefs would you recommend that we keep an eye on? You know, I'm really excited about the sous chef in uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Minneapolis from uh, Owamne. I believe that's how you say his restaurant. They just won Best New Restaurant. And as, you know, I'm Afro-Indigenous. I'm Afro-Cherokee. When I think about that perspective of seeing natives win, you know, awards like these, I really was so inspired. I was like, wow, that's what I really wanted to acknowledge. You know, like, I'm going to be real. I love some, you know, some mesquite pancakes. You know what I'm saying? Like, those are the vibes right there. And um, when I get the chance to take it back to, you know, places where the reservation can get acknowledged, you know, there's a lot of injustice happening there. To see it happening on a positive level where there can be something around sustainability and not just water rights that is always focused on. 
you know, we can actually highlight some of the, the cultural understanding and not just the, you know, the things that we deal with when it comes to cultural appropriation, should we say. Yeah, Sean Sherman, yeah. Yeah, next level stuff. Shout out to the D. Hey, man. Well, that's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you next, which is what are you working on now? <laughs> wow. So after receiving that uh, Thrillist Award um, and getting featured in People Magazine with Natalie Portman, just been focusing on this new album released on Earth Day. It's uh, the first half of it. It's called Concrete Garden, spelled with a K. The goal is to transform urban landscapes, you know, create rooftop gardens, wall gardens, windowsill gardens, closet gardens. And I feel like the goal for all of us so that we all can eat is so important to me. I really wanted to take it to the next level. So I dropped the album in organic tricolored cherry tomato seeds from the Andes Mountains that are all heirloom. And the goal with that is the fact that we can actually transform our hood, you know, I can put this on the corner with a young brother who may have a felony and wants to be, you know, in a different perspective of how they can change their life. We give them a green job. And this is what it looks like to create equity and inclusion. And I think, you know, through the culinary world, we can do that. And I wanted to show that at the James Beard because not only that, you know, the fact that hip hop is transforming the landscape and being the forefront of sustainability the same way we can for sex, drugs and violence, we might as well utilize it for identifying what the new level of cultural understanding looks like. Adrian, what have you been working on? So I'm looking, I'm, I'm in, my next major project is going to be on the history of African-American street vendors and how they shape the food scenes of some of our major cities, New Orleans, Charleston, Savannah, um, from, and New York from the 1600s well into the 20th century. And I want to show what they brought from Africa, not only in terms of foods introduced, but the culture, the way they sang their songs. What, what Are there echoes from Africa in that? Are there aftertastes in the dishes that they sold on the streets? It sounds like you're <laughs> angling for another James Beard Award. So we'll keep an eye on that. So final question, DJ Cavo. Have you gotten any sense that you might be asked to judge again? And if so, would you accept? Well, as of now, I'm a, I'm a member of the committee. And I'm grateful for that. And um, I'm sure when another opportunity comes up, I will be more than happy not only to, you know, be involved, but um, I feel like the work that I'm going towards right now actually might end up in a nomination before anything else, you know. So very mm. grateful for that. All right. Colorado on the international stage. We have to keep an eye on that. Thank you both for joining us today on Colorado Matters. Gratitude. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank you. That was Denver native Itef Vita, a.k.a. DJ Kavum, a vegan chef and rapper who was tapped for the first time to serve as a judge for the 2022 James Beard Awards. We were also joined by Denver soul food scholar Adrian Miller, a two-time James Beard Award winner. And a quick note of transparency, Adrian Miller is on CPR's board of directors. You can check out the live stream of the awards ceremony, which by the way, has been viewed more than a million times already on the Beard Foundation's official Twitter account, which is at Beard Foundation on Twitter. Edward W. Hardy is a standout violinist. He was born and raised in New York in the 90s and early 2000s and recently moved to Greeley to get his doctorate at the University of Northern Colorado. He moved because of a special bond he formed with the teacher more than a decade ago. CPR classical host Jesse Jacobs has their story. 
Edward W. Hardy fell in love with the violin at age seven. He grew up in Harlem and heard students playing in an after-school program there. I looked at my mom and I tapped on the shoulder and pointed to the direction of all the people playing the violin. He says he didn't talk a lot then, but his mother knew what he meant. She signed him up for the program called Opus 118 Harlem School of Music. Around that time, that program gained national attention. It was the subject of a 1999 movie, Music of the Heart, starring Meryl Streep as music teacher Roberta Gaspari. Make the box with your feet. Come on. Tabletops up. Stop sign. Beautiful. Let's go. Five, six, seven, and... Twelve students who were black and Latino like myself, um, studying with Roberta and any other like assistant teachers and other teachers that came along. Beyond the program, Hardy says it was hard to find much in the way of mentoring. There were no classical musicians at all that I knew of. I mean, growing up in Harlem, it was a very tough time with all the things happening around me. Didn't understand what those people trading money and selling things on a corner were doing or, or, or what was happening walking around. And I was told to just focus on where I'm going, always have a place to go. And that's when my parents always had me in some type of music program. He practiced at all hours, but still, when it came time to audition for colleges, he got rejected. Hardy says people he admired encouraged him to switch to viola. It's less competitive, and he might have a better chance at scholarships. It was a lot of the, you can't do this because of the way you look. Growing up, I didn't understand really what that meant, because I was always in music classes doing something I loved. One place Hardy did find support was at a music camp where he met a teacher, Dr. Jubal Folks. Hardy remembers being mesmerized by his instructor. This very tall man playing the violin beautifully. And I just gravitated to the way he played. And the way he taught, I just understood everything he said. They bonded over their shared experience of being outsiders in classical music. Hardy for his race, and the teacher, Folks, for his upbringing. Folks had grown up on a rural farm in North Carolina. There were wasp nests everywhere and... You know, there was no plumbing inside and there was no heat (laughs) until we got the wood stove working. Folks says most classical music careers start from a place of much greater privilege than he had as a kid. There needs to be a certain level of income where you can afford an instrument and private lessons. You can't play the violin without private lessons. You just can't. His family didn't have money for that, but he inherited a violin at age six and was expected to play country music like his brother. Instead, classical music became a way for folks to rebel against his parents. Classical music became my own thing that they couldn't tell me how to play it better or you should do this and this and this. And and I was pretty defiant in that way as a teenager. Like Hardy, folks was a very good violinist, but he was encouraged to drop it and play the viola instead. In his case, because of his large frame. You can't tell on the radio, but I'm six foot six. And around age 11, my teachers started to try to kind of push me in that direction. But both men chose to stay with the instrument they loved, the violin. After meeting at the camp and forming a special bond, they each went on their own way for a while. They occasionally kept in touch on Facebook. Hardy built his career. He went to college in New York. He wrote music for the Obie Award-winning off-Broadway show The Woodsman. He got his master's. Folks moved to Greeley to teach violin at the University of Northern Colorado. 
Then, as if destiny was calling, the student, Hardy, married into a Colorado family at a wedding in Thornton in 2020. A decade had passed since he saw Folks. They reunited at the wedding. A year later, Folks lured Hardy to Greeley to earn his doctorate in violin. Their bond is now stronger than ever. I just have this incredible, weird, grateful, blessed connection with Jubal. He understands me and I understand him. And I, every, every year that I get to know him more and more, I realize how much I'm like him. He's so impressive. <laughs> he is so impressive. I'm just so, I'm basically grateful that he's, that he's here at UNC. And I'm grateful for his presence. Both Hardy and Folks say the student-teacher bond is essential, especially when you face barriers to get in. Your connections and the relationships that you maintain basically guide you through your career. And they become, they grow into the music that we hear. Uh, Orchestras, chamber music, all of these collaborations, they begin with the personal relationships. I couldn't have said that better myself. I mean... It's true. Relationships are everything. And it's about trust, Hardy says. He's able to be very clear and honest and very direct with me. In addition to studying at UNC, Hardy has continued to build his career in Colorado. He's the digital marketing director and artistic advisor for the Beethoven in the Rockies concert series. And the landscape inspires him to write music. I've never seen mountains this much, especially beautiful ones. And so now I get to think about arriving at the mountains, kind of like a Dvorak situation when you're (laughs) going to the climax of a symphony or something. Edward W. Hardy still travels back to his native New York a lot. He started the Omnipresent Music Festival, which showcases the music and artistry of people of color. Something I never had growing up, I never got to see someone that looked like me on stage playing classical music. And now all these kids that are very diverse are seeing something seeing people who look like me. Hardy says he will always want to perform, but he also wants to be a teacher, just like his mentor, Dr. Jubal Folks. Jesse Jacobs, CPR Classical. The music you heard in that piece was performed by Hardy and Folks. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield.